Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hi, friends. This is Jeffrey Rickman. So glad you joined us on the No Water Methodist podcast. This episode is going to be the um, proclamation of the word from this last Sunday, January 30th. We're now in ordinary time. Lent is right around the corner, so trying to get myself ready for some uh, self-denial. Anyway, if you observe Lent, you should be getting yourself in gear too. Get clear about what you want to do. Um, the message from this last Sunday has to do with the importance of speech, speaking, talked a couple weeks ago about how being silent when you have something to say is a form of lying. Um, today, the first reading, or this last Sunday, the first reading was from the prophet Jeremiah, whenever the Lord puts words in his mouth and commissions him, and Jeremiah doesn't want to do it, as so many don't want to do it. And so we talked about why it is that people don't want to speak when we have the same Holy Spirit within us as Jeremiah had. Um, and then we uh, go to 1 Corinthians where we talk about the nature of love and how um, confusing it is to live in a time where people – everybody cares about love, but not many people seem to care to know the love of Jesus and um, to, to exercise discernment in their personal lives about how they order their love. And finally, we turn to the gospel reading where Jesus is not received in his whole hometown and people try to kill him. And uh, so it's kind of an exciting chronicle, but it's a sober reflection on the impact that words have whenever we speak them to people who don't want to hear them. But when Jesus himself speaks, then who are we to think that we are afforded the option to stay silent, right? So anyway, I hope you enjoy your time in uh, meditation and reflection with us this week. Um, just I know I've said it before, but I just feel really blessed to have a community of faith that chooses to receive a hard word rather than get offended. There's so many pastors that spend a lot of anxiety each week trying not to offend people, and, um, and I don't have to be one of those because I have very gracious people that uh, I get to be in fellowship with. So uh, I would encourage you to likewise be in a gracious spirit as you receive this encouragement and uh, may the Holy Spirit bless you as you attend upon the Word. It's at this point in worship that we turn to God's Holy Word. The Old Testament and the New Testament are the same story. They don't tell the same story. They're, they're just united together. That's why the Christian Bible has the whole Old Testament and the New Testament together. Jews have the Old Testament. They don't have the New Testament. Um, Christians believe that the New Testament is informed by the Old Testament, and indeed you can't really understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. Before the New Testament was written, there was an awareness on the part of the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews, that God was one, but that also he manifested himself in, in different ways. He had a Holy Spirit. In Genesis it talks about his spirit uh, dwelling over the waters of chaos. And his word is talked about throughout the Old Testament as what is sent by God to the prophets that would then give them holy uh, language and message to give to God's holy people. So 
and at different points in history, God raised up prophets that then he, he put his Holy Spirit upon, he sent his word into, and that is what allowed them to fulfill the supernatural role of speaking to people about things that lie on the other side of the veil. So the first reading this morning is going to be an account of one of these prophets being called. And you know my preaching style by now. We, we want to be faithful to the original context of what was, was written here. We want to understand that. But we also want to see what does that have to do with me and you here and now today in Nowata, Oklahoma. So let your minds be dwelling there as we hear this account from the prophet Jeremiah. Okay, reading, our first reading is from Prophet Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, which you can find on the page of 1170 of your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of God. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I set you apart, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations, Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I point you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. This is the, this is the word of the Lord. So the way I set this up was there was a way that People understood things to work in the Old Testament, and then things shift in the New Testament. Now, nothing is canceled out. Jesus said, not one jot, none, one tittle of the law is canceled out. He came to fulfill that. Some of the deals changed, though. The Holy Spirit is still around. And in fact, what happened on the day of Pentecost, you remember the prophet Joel foretold of a time when the Holy Spirit would be poured out, not just on the prophets, but upon all people, young and old. Uh, young women and old men, you remember this, they, they quote this in, in Acts of the Apostles, on the day of Pentecost, whenever the Holy Spirit falls upon them all. So let's ask a basic question here. I know I've preached on it a few times, hopefully you held on to it. This Holy Spirit that falls upon all believers that are, that are in the church, is it the same Holy Spirit as the prophet Jeremiah had? Yes, it is. Absolutely, yes, it is. And so this expectation that God put on Jeremiah, he also puts on me and you. A couple weeks ago, I did a sermon where I talked about how whenever you know the truth, it's a lie not to speak up. You remember me talking about this? I got a lot of feedback from it at Delaware and here. A lot of people know it's true, know that they should be speaking up, but it's a very uncomfortable thing to speak up. Jeremiah here in this account, did Jeremiah want to speak God's message to the people? He says, no, Lord, I'm too young. And God says, don't tell me you're too young. Did you see that? The last sovereign Lord, verse 6, it said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go. You must go. God is so emphatic. You must go. It's not, hey, if you want to please me, you'll do this. It's you must go to everyone I send to you. 
send you to and say whatever I command you. Now, what if God's expectation is that you and I are exactly the same as Jeremiah? That our way of life, going through life, is not marked with silence, but speaking. And that's not to mean that we're supposed to be a bunch of chatterboxes, but it doesn't matter how antisocial you are. You still have family. You have neighbors that live around you. Most of you have friends. How many of them know who the living Lord is and what he expects of them? And we like to assume, once upon a time, people assumed in this nation that, hey, everybody born in America knows what the good news is. They don't need me to tell them. They just know. And I hope you don't believe in that. Being born in America does not make you a Christian any more than being born in a McDonald's makes you a hamburger, okay? It's just not how it works. The only way to be a Christian is whenever you hear the truth and it becomes your truth. But a lot of people haven't heard the truth. And they don't magically know the truth. The only way they're going to know is for you to tell them, yes, it'd be so nice if everybody got on our live stream and everybody heard Pastor Jeffrey talk. Just as a side note, I went over to uh, the, the museum yesterday. They were having a, a celebration here in town, and they had uh, somebody out making cowboy uh, uh, beans, and it was great. But a guy comes up to me as soon as I barely know this guy. He barely knows me from way back. He says, hey, I listened to your podcast the other day. It was really good. There are people, and TJ and I look at the readouts, there are people all over this town who do listen to what we put out there and they do watch. They don't sign on uh, and let us know they're with us. They hear, but you know, the thing about faith is it's not just about hearing it, it's about watching how other people live by it. And that's where we're really scandalized and that's where it gets hard. A lot of people don't want to give this news about Jesus to other people because they themselves have not been changed by it. They live the same as people who don't know Jesus. And they go, well, I guess I shouldn't offer it to people because I myself am not transformed by this news. So what's, what's to be said to a person who isn't right with God? They're not living like they ought to. They know the truth, but they're not living it. Do, do they get a pass? They don't have to tell anybody anymore? What do we say to them? I know we don't have anyone like that here, but what's to be said to a person who's not right with God and so they don't think they should be speaking about it the only thing to say is you need to get right with God there is no provision God makes no provision for someone to know the truth and not live by it and be quiet about it there is no provision about that the only provision is when you know the truth you yourself live by it and then you extend the invitation to other people to live by it as well and we, we get intimidated by that we go well I'm not very persuasive and I, I don't know all the arguments and you know I I don't know, I don't have a good reputation in this town or whatever. People make all kinds of excuses. You know, you got Jeremiah here saying, oh, I'm too young. You got other people saying, I'm too old. Uh, I'm not articulate. You remember when God called Moses? Moses said, I, I got a speech impediment. I can't talk. God calls who he calls. He called you and me. That's why you're here. He's called you here. You might have felt like it was your own personal decision. It wasn't. He called you. You answered. But then the, the way forward from here is learning what your voice sounds like when it offers salvation to others. So what does it sound like? You know, you know what my voice sounds like. What does your voice sound like whenever you tell other people the truth? What does your life look like when you live the truth? What's the difference between a person who doesn't know the truth and a person who does? I, I use people who don't know the truth, I call worldlians. They're people who are just born in the world, they live by the world. What's the difference between a worldlian 
and a believer in Jesus Christ. And that's essentially what I'm preaching about every Sunday. We're holding ourselves up against up to the scriptures and saying, okay, what portrait do the, the, the scriptures paint? And then what do we see when we turn on the TV and when we walk down the street and when we look at our unsaved family members? And the real scary thing is a lot of the time, we don't know the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. We don't know what difference it makes in a person's life when they believe. And when we don't know that, well, we're lost, aren't we? We need to have a real clear picture about what life looks like when a person doesn't know the Lord versus when they do. The thing we get from this reading is when a person knows and loves the Lord, they speak truth to the people around them. They speak about who God is and who he's calling them to be. And you know, these words, they have great power. At the end it says, See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Words have great ability to tear down and destroy. They also have great ability to build up. Have you ever built someone up by your words? There have been times when I opened my mouth and I spoke to somebody about what I see in them in a good way, and I see their whole spirit and demeanor change. And I see something beautiful happen. And I go, man, God is so good that he allowed me to do that for somebody. And, you know, there's been other times when people are a little too secure in themselves. I don't like doing it. They're a little too secure in themselves. They've, they're resting on their own righteousness. They're thinking they're going to save themselves. And I help them see themselves from a different angle where they realize they're no better than anybody else. And outside of Jesus redeeming work in them, that they are toast. And I see that look come on their face. And usually it's a very upset look and they're mad at me. But even then I'd realize God has done a holy thing in me because I've at least given someone a chance to repent. Last thing I'm going to say before we move on. There are a lot of people who need to repent, but they have no idea that they need to. They have no idea. And they think that they're right with God. And they think that they're going to die and they're going to be welcomed into God's heavenly kingdom. And on that day, so many are going to be disappointed. They are just going to be so surprised. They're going to get there, and they're going to be told, no, get away from me. I never knew you, you evildoer. And at that point, their minds are going to go to the believers that they knew, and they're going to say, why didn't they warn me? Why didn't they warn me? And I believe, even worse for us, when we get to God's heavenly temple, he's going to say, well, Jeffrey, why didn't you warn them? They knew you. They were in your orbit. You had all these conversations about politics with them, about your kids with them, about neighborhood stuff with them. You didn't have it in you to talk about the most important thing with them. And against that questioning, we're only going to stand slack-jawed because there is no good excuse, is there? A principle I like live in my life, but I don't like living it by, I found it very helpful, is what course forward am I least likely to regret? I'm going to regret something. Anybody here ever regret something you've done? All of us have. We make bad decisions. A lot of us, we know I'm probably going to regret this thing I'm about to do here. And then just have the discipline to go, well, then I'm not going to do it. And then learning in a moment of silence. Have you ever been in a moment where you're silent and you know you should speak, but you're just like, ah, I'm not going to speak. And then the regret you carry for years. Don't carry that regret. God calls you to speak. Learn to speak.
did Pastor Jeffrey just tell you to grab a bullhorn and start driving up and down your street yelling at people that they're going to hell? I did not say that. I did not say that. Oh, Pastor Jeffrey's saying I have to learn how to speak. Yes, you find your way to speak. It doesn't have to be a bullhorn out on the street corner. But God help you if you don't tell the people around you. In our first reading, we heard, um, we heard God say, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And in this we have, in verse 9, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. Let me ask you a basic question. Is there any stage of life where God doesn't care very much about us? The scriptural witness seems to be before anyone else knows who you are and that you're alive. When you are hidden in your mother's womb and even she doesn't know you're in there, God does. He knows you. He loves you. And when you get to the end of life, Sarah Best's grandmother's going through a hard time right now. A lot of times she doesn't know where she is. She doesn't know who's around her. She doesn't have family close. She's very confused. A couple nights ago, she was up knocking on all the doors in her living facility, just very distressed got a person in the other church who's related to a, a person who's, um, who doesn't even know who he is anymore. His mind is just that far gone. If you've ever known someone with Alzheimer's, it's just a cruel disease. Does God care about people who don't know who they are? Who are so old and beaten down that they're not good for anything anymore? Does God still love those people? Absolutely. And I take great comfort in that. Every single human... Young or old, seen or unseen, is made in God's image and worthy of his love. Not worthy of his love. God gives his grace and love to those who don't deserve it. And he's especially mindful of those that the world is not mindful of. The world cares about the, the vigorous, the powerful, the wealthy. God just cares if you're made in his image and if you're faithful. And that's it. This psalm is, is not a portrait of who we are. It's who we want to be. Oh, Lord, you are my hope, my trust, Lord, from my youth. That's not the story for many people anymore. Most people who, uh, who love the Lord, they haven't had a good path with him. I was raised to love the Lord, but I didn't really know the Lord. I fell away from the Lord in a big way. I think I've told you all from the pulpit. I had a few years where I renounced the Lord, and I was an active atheist and a, and a heathen, a hedonist, a pagan. And I did big, bad things that I regret. Most people I know who are believers today, they likewise have really sad chapters in their life. There are a lot of people who are believers today that were not raised to be believers. They haven't trusted in the Lord from their youth. But a lot of us do have people that we've been friends with for decades. Anybody ever had a friend that was with you when you were much younger and y'all have just stayed with each other through different chapters of life and they would be there for you in a heartbeat? You know what it's like to have a friend like that? Is there anything you wouldn't do for such a friend? Is there any length you wouldn't go for such a friend? I was reading, I was reading this. Um, I told you all about Robert Montgomery. He was a member of our church in the 1940s. He went off to World War II, died at the age of 22. He was a bomber pilot. And he was flying his 50th mission over Germany. And there was a lot of, um, I, I found an article this week describing what happened because one of the other guys on the plane who fought alongside him survived and knew that his story needed to be told. He told the story of they were just getting cut up in the air by all of this machine gun fire. 
and they were all shot and the, the, the plane was on fire, but he wouldn't uh, get out of the plane until he dropped his payload, what it needed to happen. And then he led off the, uh, the only guys that survived. There were only three survivors out of 20 some guys on this plane. And he didn't survive. They, they found his, his body later with the, uh, he'd exploded in the plane. But the reason I bring this up is because this man who fought alongside him, he was so touched by his service that he knew years later, he said, I've got to get this guy posthumously awarded for what he did. And he got him a silver star, which is the third highest uh, medal you can get in the U.S. Air Force at that time. That happened during Alan Schneider's time, and they, they put it in the museum here. I bring that up because we humans can be really faithful to one another when we've been through stuff together, can't we? And especially when you've been through a war together. But for some reason, we don't often connect that to God. We give God kind of this passive role, like he's a genie who's just been along for the ride, but he hasn't really gone through it with me. But when you've walked right with the Lord, you know that he has been with you through every stage of your life. He has gone to battle for you. He has seen you through the thickest and the hardest of times. And it comes a point when you've been walking with the Lord for decades where you can sing this song to him. Oh, Lord, you are my trust. You are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from my birth. It was you who took me from my mother's womb. So my praise is continually of you. I wish that were my story. One day it's going to be my story. One day all of my old sinful self is going to be so eradicated by the Holy Spirit that all that's going to be left is this intimate loving relationship between me and God where I sing his praises all day long without any thought toward anything else because I know he's been there for me through thick and thin. Jesus once upon a time approached a man who needed his son to be healed and Jesus asked him, do you believe? And the man said, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. And sometimes I think that's the best prayer we can possibly say. We have sides of ourself that isn't really with God, isn't with him all the way, isn't trusting, isn't, isn't sold out for him. But God desires and demands and requires all of us. And we happily give it when we see rightly who he is. Another thing that's hard to see rightly is love. And the, the next reading we're going to have is on the nature of love. And one of the things I want to say as, we, as we're reading about this, do you need in, to be a Christian in order to experience the emotion of love? Or can non-Christians experience love as well? There isn't a culture in the world, inside or outside of Christ, where mothers do not love their babies. Where, where, where wives do not love their husbands. Well, that's a bad joke. What? There isn't a culture in the world that doesn't have love. Everybody loves. There isn't a person in the world who does not have the capacity for love who has not loved before. So when we're hearing this chapter about love, it's not, oh, you guys don't know love. The question is, do we love rightly? So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Our third reading is from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, which you can find on page 1785 of your pew Bibles. Listen again. To the word of God. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, 
And if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will, be, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God. The note on which we ended this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, was, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is... I haven't pointed at the stained glass windows for a while, but if you look at the top left, one over from the top left, you see a cross and an anchor, and that thing between them is, can you see what it is? That's a heart. <laughs> and the heart stands for love, the cross stands for faith, the anchor stands for hope, faith, hope, and love. And now the greatest of these is love. And as I said before, Linda read this. She did a very fine job reading that, by the way. I appreciate when folks take their time and help us absorb it all. As I said before, she read it. Everybody loves. Everybody has love. Every culture has love. Every religion has love. The thing that saves us is not love. The thing that saves us is saving faith in Christ Jesus. But when we are saved, when we know him, he refines us. And one of the things that he refines is love. All of us are born sinful, in sin, with disordered loves. When we have disordered love, what does that lead us to? Whenever you love something inappropriately, usually the end of that emotion is idolatry. Idolatry is loving, worshiping created things rather than the creator. When you love the Lord rightly, you see everything else as something that directs your love towards the Lord. It's not wrong to love your family whenever your family directs you towards the Lord and your love towards the Lord. But I'll tell you, as a, as a father and as a husband, I have often struggled not to idolize my family. How do I know if something's an idol? Well, if I sin to get it or if I sin if I don't have it, then it's an idol. If I sin to get it or if I sin when I don't have it, it's an idol. 
What things do we have in our lives that we love inappropriately? So that if we don't get it, we get mean and nasty. Or in order to get it, we get mean and nasty. If you're honest with yourself, you know that you're prone towards idolatry in different ways. The key is to figure out what loves do I have that are right with God and what loves do I have that are not right with God. The, the thing that it helps us figure out here, first off, it helps us figure out all these spiritual gifts that God gives through his Holy Spirit are wonderful. Speaking in tongues is great. Uh, giving away your goods to the poor is great. Prophesying is great. Guess what? They mean absolutely nothing if your love is not made right by God. You can sell all the goods you possess. You can be persecuted for the church. And still, if your heart is not right with God, if his love has not transformed your love, it's worth nothing. People quote this at weddings like, oh, isn't this a nice scripture? It's one of the most offensive scriptures there is. Oh, yeah, you love, everybody loves. That doesn't make anything special. The, th the special thing is when your love matches God's love. So what, what's that like? Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Already, how many of us have love like that? It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angry. I can't tell you how much crap I read nowadays that tells people, put yourself first. Love yourself. There was an article in the paper the other day, making room for women to leave their children to love themselves first. That person's going to hell, whoever wrote it. There, there is no version of God's love that allows you to put yourself first first. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Oh, how many of us have that love where we don't keep any record of wrongs? That's what marriage is, says some people. She's got her list. I got my list. We fight. We, we, we bring them out like Pokemon cards. They fight each other. That was the funniest thing I've said today. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The end. And if your love's not like that, well, guess what? It's not godly love, and it's worth nothing. It's worth nothing. That's what the scriptures say. So at that point, you can just give up and go, well, I guess I'm just done for. Or you can say, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Lord, I'm not pure yet. I need you to purify me. Would you all say that prayer with me right now? Can you say, Lord, I am not pure. Lord, make me pure. If you say that prayer every day, you'd have to be quite a hypocrite for it not to change you, don't you think? Now, the last, the last bit here is all wonderful. The, the phrase that always stuck with me ever since I was a child was, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I acted as a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish ways. pretty clear. There are certain things that suffice for us when we're children, but they don't make it while we're, when we're adults, we have to grow up. There are certain things that are just handed to you as a child. As an adult, you really have to work for it. You really have to do it. You have to grow up. And I find more and more as people come to me with problems, there are key core issues of people refusing to grow up. And sometimes the most loving thing, I think sometimes the only thing there is to say to a person is, Man, you need to grow up. You can't be carrying this childish stuff throughout life. 
And especially when we're talking about love, we live in a culture that has a very childish understanding of love. One of the mottos is love is love. If two or three or four people love one another, who are you to say, who am I to say that their love is illegitimate? And it's not a question of who am I to say or who do you to say. It's God says. God has told us what love is and what love is not. And we need to have that integrity to be clear there is a difference between worldly love and heavenly love. And just because you feel love, I remember I, was, I had an inappropriate relationship with a girl whenever I was in high school. It was inappropriate, and my parents didn't have it in them to say, just because you feel love doesn't mean it's good. Actually, they did say it to me, and I didn't listen. And I should have listened. Just because you love doesn't mean it's right love. And being an adult means being able to step outside of your emotions and figure out when they're godly and when they're not. One of the hardest things in the world is to love something and keep distance between it. But I'll tell you, man, that's what every country song is about nowadays. It's a dysfunctional relationship with someone that isn't any good for you, but, oh, they play the right notes in your heart. Grow up. Stay away. It's not good for you. All right. Final reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 21 through 30. You can find it on page 1599 of your pew Bibles. This picks up right where we left off last week. You remember Jesus came into the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, read the prophecy of Isaiah the prophet, talking about what his ministry was about. Then he sat down. This is where it picks up. Verse 21, Jesus began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he's just announced himself as the Messiah. Verse 22, All spoke well of Jesus and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, Jesus continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to, widow, to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. To you guys, it's not immediately clear. Sidon is a Gentile area. This is not a Jewish woman that Elijah was sent to. Verse 27, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. A Syrian is not a Jew. Syrian is also a Gentile. We'll come back to that. Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him, this is Jesus, to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. I always wondered if before this, Jesus knew they were going to try and throw him off the cliff. So he buttered himself up with something. So he's real slippery and they couldn't get a hold of him or something. Or if there's just like a holy force field around him and they're trying to grab him and they just can't. It doesn't say it just says they were trying to kill him. There was a crowd of him and he got loose. Now, the, the meat of this passage is Jesus, are, are these people offended with him? Obviously, yes, they're trying to kill him. But what did he say that really upset them this badly? It's not clear to us because we might know these stories from the Old Testament, but what's that got to do with them back then 
and then us here today. This is actually a harder passage for us to understand. He lifts up two. He says, I can tell you guys are expecting me to do miracles. It says it right there. They say, we want to see what he's been doing in Capernaum. What's he been doing? He's been casting out demons. He's been um, healing sick people. He's come to Nazareth. They want to see this dog and pony show. They want to see Jesus healing and casting out demons. They are excited. And they feel entitled to it. They're his hometown. They say, hey, we know his daddy. He's Joseph's son. We know this guy. We are so excited he's here. They're so happy. And he says, y'all are going to quote this proverb, proverb to me, physician, heal thyself. But let me tell you something. In our ancient books that make us who we are, there were two different scenarios where God's prophets were in the midst of a scenario where people needed healing and they chose to heal people outside of the covenant community. The widow at Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian, both of them were not Jews. And the inference he's making there is, I'm not going to heal you guys. You see yourself as the in-group. I'm going to go to the out-group. Jesus, we were reading this in the Bible study on Thursday, which, by the way, you need to come to Bible study on Thursdays. We were reading this story about how Jesus was at a meal with sinners, tax collectors and the like, and the Pharisees came to him and said, why are you eating and drinking with sinners? And Jesus said, when a doctor comes, he doesn't come to see the well people. He comes to see the sick people. And he said, likewise, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. We like to have this view where God plays favorites, where God shows partiality. He has his people that he loves and he has his people that he hates. And he pours his blessing out on the ones that he loves and he curses on the ones that he hates. Jesus said, God sends rain on the good and bad alike. And sends the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked. God is so good. He has blessings for good and bad. The question is not who is good and who's bad. Because what's the answer to that question? We're all bad. All of us are bad. The question is, who does God reach out to? And it's the least and the lost, the dispossessed, the ones the world doesn't care for. We just talked earlier. What about the old people that aren't good for anything, that are wasted away with life? What about the young people, unprotected in the womb, that nobody values until they're born? God cares about them just as much as everybody else. God calls everybody into his loving and saving embrace. And Jesus makes clear here, you guys don't need it, so I'm not going to give it. How many of us feel entitled to blessings from the Lord? I think there are a lot of people who they follow Jesus and they expect to be rich and they expect to be happy and they expect for everything to go their way. In fact, I can't tell you how many people have come into the faith and they still have struggles and they say, I feel like I'm doing everything right. Why do I still have these struggles? And they get their mad at God and they shake their fist at God saying, why are you letting me go through this, God? When you follow God, the promise is not that he will save you from anything hard ever happening to you. He is not a genie. He is not a servant. He's a loving father who walks alongside us and guides and guards us as we suffer. And we will suffer. Some of us are suffering. Some of us have been through tremendous times of suffering. And if we get mad at God because he's not protecting us from the suffering, then we are not his. Because we realize God suffered. Didn't Jesus suffer? He made suffering holy. And as we suffer, he makes our suffering holy. And for those of us who persevere, and remember, love means persevering. For those of us who persevere to the end, we will find a realm of endless light waiting for us in the embrace of our Savior.